Hello, welcome to BioBased Radio, a podcast promoting a more sustainable future through conversations with industry, university, and environmentalists. Today, our host, Denny Hall, is talking with Joel Stone, president of Convergence Advisors, a firm focused on delivering visionary and innovative solutions for the bioeconomy. Hi, I'm Denny Hall, host of BioBased Radio and director of OBIC, the Bioproducts Innovation Center here at The Ohio State University. Today, Joel and I talk about investments in BioBased. We'll talk about careers needed in the bioeconomy, feedstocks of the future, and cooking hamburgers with jet fuel. So today we're going to talk a little bit about some of the amazing advances that are occurring in the bioeconomy with the bio-based technologies and uh, in particular bio-based materials. And Joel, in recent years, the some of the early money pouring into this field has become quite impressive. Can can you comment a little bit on what you're seeing out there in terms of investment in non-pharma bio-based technologies? Certainly, Denny, please to. I I pretty closely track what's been going on. As you well know, I've been been involved in the bio-based space my entire career since college which has been a long time, but, but I, uh, I use uh, SynBioBeta, which is uh, an organization uh, made up of most, most if not, of the, not all of the synthetic biology companies. And from 2014 to 2017, there's been uh, right at $4 billion invested in synthetic biology ventures. 1.7 of that was in 2017. And What's very interesting is through the first two quarters of 2018, there's been another 1.5 billion invested. So if you look at how that's tracking for 2018, there will be a a total of 3 billion invested, taking us to a total over the span from 2014 to the end of 2018 of well over $7 billion, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, and gives an, an indication, you know, with this very steep curve, where we're headed with uh, the combination of biology and chemistry for produ- producing bio-based materials and, and fuels. And when I say bio-based materials, I say uh, that means everything from chemicals to food products to agricultural additives, things like biostimulants and biopesticides and uh, microbiome so it's really uh, really you know just at a accelerating pace uh, you know I call it the the repeat of Moore's law but what uh, and for those of you that re- remember Moore's law that was sort of the the coined term when transistors came about in terms of how quickly those would advance we're seeing the same thing if not even at a faster pace within synthetic biology 
And this is predominantly Series A funding? Uh, much of it is Series A, but there is, there is some Series B. I think there might be some Series C. I haven't, I haven't looked at that. That's a good question. I haven't looked at differentiating that between you know, A rounds and B rounds, et cetera. Well, I, I think the point, though, is that it's early seed money and kind of suggests that if you just follow the money, uh, there's going to be a lot of jobs, uh, engineers needed, you know, kind of as this, as these technologies commercialize, you know, do we have the capacity to, to satisfy that demand? Yeah, no, I mean, you, you, hit, you hit the nail on the head when you, you know, the, this is all early stage funding and there's going to be the need for engineers and scientists, microbiologists, you know, all the folks on the commercial side that will be able to, 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 to move the, all these new products and inventions through pilot scale, through demonstra- demonstration scale, and onward into commercialization. And when you look at the commercialization, there's going to be a need for, in many cases, fermentation capacity, because a lot of these products uh, come by fermentation. So that's where, when I look at look at the worldwide capacity and really a focus on North American capacity, we have a great shortage of what's available for capacity to move these products into commercialization. So I'm, I'm just intrigued. Um, would, do you think this would be comparable in scale or scope uh, to petroleum in terms of petroleum engineers back when, you know, what, a hundred and some years ago? Very well likely could. I mean, it would certainly be comparable to the need for, for engineers and technology people uh, with the most recent explosion that we saw in industrial biotech, which was biofuels. When you look at the amount of uh, biofuel capacity that was built out between uh, 2003 and 2009, that was approaching, that was well over 10 billion, uh, billion gallons of production of ethanol. And who knows what that, you know, I haven't, I haven't calculated out the total number of, total amount of fermentation capacity, but you know, that was well over 210 uh, ethanol plants that were built in a very short time span and really stressed the need for engineers and, you know, con- construction workers, technicians. Uh, the amount of jobs that, that came about from that was was extremely large. So I think we're going to see something similar, if not larger, th- than that most recent occurrence. So the, a big driver for all this is this CRISPR-Cas9. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and, and why people should be interested in this technology? Yeah, uh, CRISPR-Cas9 was really a game changer, which uh, basically what uh, and uh, some people call it digital biology. So you can pretty much you know use it interchangeably. People that use the terminology digital biology with I I prefer synthetic biology myself. Uh, but basically, what it is, it, it allows technicians to go in, you know, model out what they want an organism to do, and having done the gene mapping, know what genes cause certain things to happen, and then you can go in and damage a particular gene or move them around within that organism without interjecting any foreign genes from a different organism. You can do it all within that one organism just by reconfiguring a targeted vector into the metabolism that you want to affect, which, uh, which allows 
the rapidity of being able to do these modifications, you know, number one, it reduces the time, you know, it used to be using traditional methods of UV radiation or, or, or chemical mutations, you, you just have to depend upon random occurrences and then select when you hit the magic bullet, you'd select the organism that you happen to make the right modification for. And that would take millions of dollars and, you know, four to, to seven years to reach the endpoint. Well, you look now and it's a matter of dollars and cents to, to make the changes and you can make those changes. It's down to where you, you can achieve the endpoint in less than nine months. So moving things from years to, to months and who knows as, as refinements continue on, how much faster that these targeted manipulations can be done. So on one side, we've got this breakthrough technology that has gotten very inexpensive on a relative scale. But on the other side, oil prices are, are starting to look like maybe they're creeping up on us and, and there might be an even greater demand for these kinds of products just because, uh, I mean, looking at drop-in chemicals that we might be able to produce as alternatives to petroleum. Any thoughts on on where things are going with oil prices? Do you got a crystal ball on that front? If I did, I'd probably be on Wall Street. <laughs> but uh, but I, I I think I think there are changes in the works in terms of uh, people's attention. When I say people, I mean more the the public sector really being more in tune with the impact that we're having as it affects climate change. And, and those trends are dribbling into all this synthetic biology work on, you know, improving agricultural chemicals and fertilizers and biostimulants so that we can reduce groundwater contamination. So entities like the Gates Foundation are investing into synthetic biology. Then you've got uh, uh, the food and type companies like Impossible Foods with their Impossible Burger and Perfect Day with, with the substitute milk. You've got bolt threads uh, producing uh, uh, silk. These are all things t targeted towards, you know, reducing greenhouse gases and environmental impacts. And most recently, an Ohio company, Marathon Oil out of Finley, Ohio, they recently uh, are going through an acquisition of the Endeavor oil refinery, which was going to, which was going to be converting uh, Bach and shale oil into uh, fuel. Uh, they just recently announced just several weeks ago that they're going to use the Haldor Topso process, which is a biomass conversion. So there's an oil company that indeed is actually, you know, moving towards re renewable fuels. The trend certainly in Europe, that Europeans are leading us in terms of use of renewable chemicals, uh, food products, uh, you know, just across the board. So I think, uh, I, I think the public sector is now recognizing, you know, the need for, you know, re basically reinventing the chemical in industry to some extent, but it's beyond the chemical industry because it's reducing the impact that, you know, that the, the, the food systems have, you know, it's not synthetic biology, but you look at this vertical farming that's now taking place. Uh, that reduces use of pesticides and, and, and harmful things that can get in, in water and soil. Another area that 
I'd like to explore with you is the changes that's happening in diesel, in particular ocean-going vessels, and the the concern about low sulfur diesel, and how we're going to satisfy that demand. Well, I think that's one of the trends, Denny, as, uh, as you and I have talked before. Uh, one thing that a lot of people aren't aware of is that there's a regulation that has already been passed that goes into effect in 2020 that uh, basically uh, there's a, to put it in a layman's terms, there's a fuel called bunker fuel, which basically is a very low quality fuel. Uh, It does burn, but it typically contains high levels of sulfur. And historically, what ocean-going vessels have done when they're far out at sea, they'll they'll burn the bunker fuel because it's the lowest cost fuel, but it's also a, a high emitter of both sulfur pollutants and particulates. And when you see a, a smokestack on a ship when it's out at sea, and you see sort of a a little bit of a gray or dark you know puffs coming out, uh, that's because it's burning bunker fuel. But presently, when the ships come within roughly 20 miles of their port city they have to switch over to another fuel tank on the on the ship and burn a, a low sulfur and a cleaner burning fuel. Uh, in 2020, uh, bunker fuel or any high sulfur fuel will no longer be allowed to be burnt. Some pundits indicate that the marathon moved to this Halder Topso uh, biomass base, which, is, would, which would create a low sulfur fuel, that a lot of that's driven by this change in regulations. And there'll be a lot of other opportunities, you know, for producing uh, low sulfur uh, diesel type of fuels, you know, for ocean going vessels. Not unlike uh, a lot of the interest in, and the aircraft industry has for years been very interested in, in uh, bio-based fuels again, uh, because of the reduction in emissions. Uh, But this regulation in 2020 for ocean going vessels, you can uh, imagine the amount of fuel consumption that takes place on on uh, the amount of freight that's being moved around the world. And there's just not enough refinery capacity to be able to satisfy that. Yeah, refineries uh, you know, have switched away from producing those kind of fuels and switching back would be very, very expensive. So it's going to be you know, very quickly building out new kinds of capacity, new, new solutions you know, for those vessels. So we've painted a very bullish, very optimistic future for these bio-based materials of food and non-food items. I want to think a little bit more about some of the commercialization challenges that are forthcoming as these technologies seek to move through, as you indicated, demonstration and and ultimately to commercial scale. Bio-based materials, by definition, start with some sort of plant material or some sort of a biological uh, feedstuff. What kind of feedstock are we thinking is going to be necessary to, you know, support these fermentation projects and, and, you know, like we're talking biofuels, biodiesel, uh, aviation fuel. Where's the plant material or the biological feedstock coming from to satisfy those kinds of production requirements. Well, when you when you look at North America, you know, having a focus on myself, having a focus on North America, when you look at the continued increases in in yields of corn, 
certainly there's going to be uh, continue to be uh, abundance of of uh, as corn yields. I think last time I looked, corn yields are averaging an increase of somewhere around 4.2 percent per year, as high as 4.6 percent per year increase in yield. That's really a remarkable change, isn't it? When yeah, year over year, year over year. You know, we've got uh, we've got grain sorghum that can be produced in a lot of the dry lands in the central U.S. lands that you know many many times aren't even farmed today. Uh, soybean yields continue to increase. Canola uh, continues to increase because uh, you know some of the synthetic biology that's going on is targeted towards yield improvements in in uh, crops that we grow. And then, of course, you've got the the extremely large resource of timber land in the U.S., which is why there's still a lot of focus on biomass conversion to sugars. But but the the near term, the low hanging fruit is making additional use of of existing uh, corn sugars and corn starches and other types of uh, of agricultural materials, all the way down to uh, use of uh, of potatoes and sugar beets and those kinds of things. So I think from an agricultural resource, we've certainly been able to be very inventive on the agricultural side in North America. And there's a lot of underutilized land in, in other countries, in China, Russia, you know, Africa, South America. South America has been continuing to increase use of, uh, of soybeans. And now there's actually a corn corn-based uh, biofuel plant uh, that recently started up, you know, uh, growing corn in Brazil. So, you know, because of new hybrids that could be developed. So I think, you know, when we look at synthetic biology, it's not only looking at the fermentation, but it's the synthetic biology that's also going into improving uh, yields and pest tolerance of, of crops that we, uh, that we grow today. So do you see it largely, I mean, would you say uh, when you think about the timber and the, you know, cellulosic feedstocks that are out there, are you seeing much in the way of technology to be able to convert that cellulose, cell walls and materials like that into sugars or starches? Yeah, it's got a ways to go yet. I think, uh, I think we still need a breakthrough, whether it be in enzymes. Uh, there's a lot of work uh, going on using other catalytic methods, you know, non-biological methods to convert uh, to convert biomass. The one company that comes to mind is Ensign. It, you know, has a catalytic process. They feed you know fine ground wood chips into a, a fluidized uh, bed uh, to convert it into directly into a, a bio crude. So I think there's multiple breakthrough technologies as people continue looking into this. But, you know, we we haven't found the magic bullet yet for using, you know, enzymatic methodologies, you know, to, you know, to do the complete conversion. But it, but with synthetic biology, it could it could be right around the corner being much more targeted on the types of enzymes that we can produce and having them be produced cost effectively. Yeah, I'm I'm struck by I'm going back to the yield increases that you commented on for uh, corn and the significance of, you know, for over 4%. I mean, that's that's really quite a remarkable scale in terms of increased yield. But not only is it on the yield side, but some of the cost of production. You know, one of the big problems that we've got with corn 
is it tends to leak nitrogen and, you know, our Midwest Corn Belt oozes some of that extra nitrogen out through the Mississippi River and out into the Gulf of Mexico. I'm, I'm just curious uh, with the some of the advent of, of a corn plant being able to produce its own nitrogen, what that might be uh, able to do for us from an environmental point of view as well. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good point, Denny, and that uh, that reminds me to, uh, to 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 talk a little bit about a lot of a lot of work that's being done in the synthetic bio uh, bio sector is producing certain types of peptides and small molecules, which we call biostimulants, that favorably impact the the micronutrient and nitrogen uptake of plants to have them be much more efficient. And then there's also a lot of work going on with the microbiome, uh, which the microbiome, a lot of us think about microbiome in terms of gut health. And, you know, a healthy human being is a fat, uh, is a function of, of their intestinal health. Well, the same thing happens in soil. So often uh, what we've historically have done is we, we over fertilize, we use a lot of, a lot of pesticides, a lot of, uh, you know, herbicides that end up killing off the bacteria that actually work favorably with the root systems of, of plant life. So, so much of this work now where, where studies can be made on the impact of yield by increasing and improving the microbiome, it's almost like doing organic farming on a massive scale. If you think of the yields and the quality of, of materials that we can get in organic farming, well, you know, by use of, uh, of synthetic biology to produce massive amounts of these organisms, as well as biostimulants, we now have a cost-effective way to do that on a much larger scale. So it'll, it'll be very interesting to watch you know, how yields continue to improve, not only by genetics, but by soil health and management. So we've talked a little bit about some of these breakthrough technologies, these bio-based technologies. We've talked about feedstocks and, and how they're impacting uh, this future bioeconomy and how some of those technologies are, are affecting even the feedstocks. Um, what's your kind of take on the marketplace? Do you think that consumers have an appetite for these environmentally advantageous materials? I, I, I think that that is continually increasing. Uh, certainly when you look at the onset of stores like Whole Foods and other you know, organic food stores, a lot's being driven by the millennials. And uh, I think these are just continued market trends that people are paying more attention. You know, certainly all of us that are involved in the sector can, can need to continue to be very much involved with, with educating the public sector. It's like, uh, you know, when I go overseas, when I'm over in the UK or over in, uh, you know, I was over in Russia several weeks ago, there's a massive amount of public television things that, that are going on showing, you know, that we need to make changes to the amount of plastic that we're consuming that ends up in the oceans. I don't see uh, anywhere near as much on TV in the, in the States as what I do overseas. But I think even here in the U.S. now, you're seeing a lot more showing up in the news that we've got to do something about 
use of plastic bags. I saw recently, I just, I think just earlier this week that by 2025, that Kroger is going to phase out uh, use of plastic bags in their stores. Uh, my question is, why couldn't they, why would, why does it take that long? They could do it even, even faster and go back to good old paper bags, which are biodegradable. But I think, uh, you know, I think sustainability through all the corporations is getting a lot more attention now more, more than what it ever has before. Uh, and that dribbles down into people looking at things on the store shelves when they go shopping and m- making a selection on what they buy. If prices are all equal, you know, they would probably select a renewable or a, or a bio-based uh, type product. You mentioned stores. It makes me think, uh, if you have, if you're talking to some entrepreneur out there and they're saying they really want to get involved in the, the bioeconomy. You know, you have any thoughts on what, what they should be doing to kind of see where there might be an opportunity for them to play? Yeah. I mean, I talk a lot with uh, students asking me what, you know, what kind of projects they, they should work on. And you know, I tell them, you know, back, back when I was uh, with a company called Opta Food Ingredients, which we were looking to make low fat foods, you know, all of our scientists, we'd go out and just walk the aisles at the stores and look at different products and go, well, which products are there that a consumer would much rather have it be a low fat product? And those are the ones that we targeted uh, ingredients and, you know, look at the ingredient list and and then identify what ingredients that we might be able to, to make uh, that would be a low fat and a renewable uh, type of ingredient. I'll give you a, a very recent example you know, as you know, I was previously president of uh, Green Biologics, and we um, Green Biologics we've got have the uh, the only fermentation facility in North America, well, actually the world, producing bio-based butanol and acetone. Well, we originally thought we'd have butanol going into various types of commodity products, and we started looking at where might it be able to to be used, and it's a very cl- it's a high density and very clean burning fuel. And we developed a product called Green Flame, which in the U.S., a very large amount of people use charcoal lighter fluid. And charcoal lighter fluid is basically kerosene, it's jet fuel. So here we are, we're cooking our, cooking our hamburgers using, using a, a, not the cleanest burning fuel and gives an off flavor. And we launched Green Flame at Green Biologics. And uh, just a couple months ago, it's been licensed to Kingsford. And Kingsford now has a product on the shelves called Ecolite, which if you compare, you know, uh, a, a regular charcoal lighter fluid with Ecolite or Green Flame, you'll see a distinct difference that you see a lot of dark soot, you know, coming into the air when you when you light charcoal with a regular charcoal lighting fluid. You use Green Flame, you see a really clean burning flame and, and you don't have those particulates and that off flavor move into the food product. So it's, it's, it's really just look, you know, all of us paying attention to things that we buy and saying, can that be made via a renewable or a bio-based route? Well, listen, congratulations on your success with Green Biologics and now Green Flame and getting Kingsford to uh, use, utilize that. I hope that many others will as well. We're getting close to the end of our time, Joel. Any other comments in particular you'd like to make sure we we share with our audience? Uh, the other the other key thing I think would be fair to share is uh, 
I've recently, uh, you know, because of the need for commercial uh, capacity for synthetic biology, I recently have become involved as a board member and actually now the acting chief technology officer for a company called Fermentum. And Fermentum is a startup company where we've envisioned what are going to be the needs for synthetic biology. And, and all these companies uh, are going to need a what we call a capital light, or I actually call it a capital ultralight way of building their business in terms of, you know, quite often where companies fail is when they have to do capital raises to, to, to build bricks and mortar types of facilities, which are very expensive. Well, what Fermentum is going to be an infrastructure as a service company. What does that mean? In short words, it means contract manufacturing. So when I look historically at what's happened in the food ingredient industry, the chemical industry, the electronics industry, most companies have not gone to where they're building their own plants. They're contracting out to capacity that's available that could be shared between multiple companies. So multiple companies basically can pool their efforts and their funding to fund a contract manufacturing facility, which can serve multiple masters and do it in a very cost efficient manner. So this to me is pretty exciting because it's, it's looking at how to enable synthetic biology companies to be successful by ma managing the capital expenditures that they're going to have to have to go commercial. And, you know, we could also provide a lot of support for understanding the applications and formulations that their ingredients or their chemicals or their materials need to be figured out to, to, to reformulate a, a branded cleaning chemical or a detergent or fabric or leather. I mean, there's, there's companies right now working on synthetic leather even. And so it's some really interesting stuff going on. And, uh, and it's going to take uh, many of us looking at how can we get these products to become commercial. Do you see any opportunities for like internships or uh, learning opportunities for some young people that are highly motivated and, and want to make a difference in this space? Well, I was, uh, you, I don't know whether you know this or not, Denny, but when I was in college, I was a co-op student. So I basically worked a quarter and went to school a quarter. I think uh, there's going to be enormous opportunities for uh, students that want to study in, in microbiology and biochemical engineering in, in all the engineering aspects, really, not just biochemical, but chemical, the, all the downstream processing, you know, all the quality, the QC and QA that work that needs to be done. Just a lot of uh, a lot of opportunities that aren't R&D that are basically probably remolding and restarting the manufacturing sector in North America. I think it's, I think a great amount of potential for internships uh, that could be fostered through the, through the universities. Thank you for listening to Biobased Radio, and thank you to our guest, Joel Stone, for being on the show today. Biobased Radio is a production of the Bioproducts Innovation Center at The Ohio State University. 
produced in association with the United States Department of Agriculture, National Institute of Food and Agriculture. BioBase Radio is hosted by Denny Hall, produced and edited by Casey Needham and Brad Collins. If you'd like to help our podcast grow, plant the seed with a friend and rate and review on iTunes. <laughs>